Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, so last week we began this new series. We're in the book of Romans, and we're just moving through it verse by verse, scripture by scripture. And the reason we do that among many uh, is to not miss the hard parts. The other reason we do that is because Paul said to the church of Acts that I have not uh, withheld from you the full counsel of God's word and truth. And we live in a modern culture where we don't want to give the whole counsel. We just want to give the attractive parts of the counsel. And then we have anemic Christians, Christians that get disease easily, Uh, They get picked off easily because they haven't been given the full counsel of God's word and way. And the full counsel of God's word and way includes things like morality, which we're going to talk about next week uh, as we get into some of the the more spicy parts of the book of Romans. Uh, Some of those things about the full counsel represents just the incredible, lavish grace and kindness of God. Some of those things represent the power of the Holy Spirit in our life. And if we decide that those parts aren't fun for us to talk about or that they don't build the church or some other kind of thing, then we'll chop them out and we'll have Christians that have giant holes in their diet and they'll get disease easier or they'll be anemic or just be easier for them to get picked off in their walk in Christ. So we've been uh, really committed to, to going verse by verse by the scripture. I don't think it's the only way to preach, but it's been a really helpful way, especially in our current culture. Um, you know, I remember preaching about homosexuality in, in, in Genesis, and I spent three weeks in, the, in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's a big part of the story. And, um, and I said, this is, this is important. You know, God, sodomy is not a part of God's way, and we have to be able to reckon that in the church. And we have to be able to talk about that in the church, or else we're not representing the whole council. And a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine, who is no longer a pastor, a senior pastor, at the time he was, he said, I can't believe you would talk about, you know, that kind of sin in church on Sunday morning. And I just thought, where else do you talk about it? What, where else are you supposed to talk about it? Like, just whisper it in the dark corners? You know what I mean? I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And like, we're ashamed to do anything that's contrary to culture because we're so desperate to be accepted by culture. We've been ashamed of the gospel. We've been ashamed of fundamentals. We've been ashamed of God's order and for family, God's all of these things we've been ashamed of as culture because the culture says this is what makes success. Having a lot of money, being secure, kind of having a plan, and then maybe doing some good on the side. That's really the metric of success. And really, that's not it in Christianity. In Christianity, obedience to God's word and way is the metric of success. Whether you see the fruit of that success or not is irrelevant, because the fruit of that may be only eternal. It may not be temporal at all. And you say, man, it hurts, though. And it's like, that's not the metric. Whether it hurts or not is not even the metric. The metric is obedience and adherence to God's formula. And so we want to really be committed to that at King's Church and, and, and all of the stuff, the hard truths and the lavishness of God's grace and forgiveness and the power of the Spirit, all of those things need to be talked about and pursued if we're going to be faithful to the text. If we're not going to be faithful to the text, you can just chop out the book of Acts and say, that ah, the power is not for us anymore. There's not a scripture that supports that, but you can just do that, right? Or you can chop out the book of Romans and say, I don't need to talk about, you know, 
all of this craziness and men giving up their natural functions to lie with other men. I'm not going to talk about that. You can just chop out the book of Romans, right? Or you can just chop out whatever you feel like chopping out or decide, no, God, I'm going to be really faithful to your word. I want to be faithful to your word and your way. It doesn't matter what my culture says because culture is going to change its mind in like 10 minutes. I just saw a New York Times story this morning, and the New York Times story said, like, it made this guy a hero, and this hero was this eco-warrior, and he's old, he was in his later 60s, he had a um, procedure done so he couldn't have children when he was 25, because he said, the only way to save the planet is to die. The only way to save the globe is to kill off humanity. So so his, his phrase was, live long and die, and that's really deceptive. That's really deceptive because it's like we still value life except not any more life from you. It's, very, it's a very tricky phrase, live long and die, because they're saying we value life and then, but not any more life because we value the planet more. And we're going to see in Romans that Paul says they begin to worship the created thing rather than the creator who may be forever praised. Amen, right? And that's exactly what this guy is doing. And you should see the comments. Look it up on Instagram. It's one of the most recent New York Times posts. Like all of these people saying this is phenomenal. There's a couple of people like maybe not a great idea to want the extinction of the planet. One one person said, okay, Thanos. And that was my favorite comment of all of them. (laughs) Because it is this great, you know. And this is one of our axioms. The kingdom of heaven produces life. The kingdom of hell produces death. And the, like, the king of, of hell's best promise is like, you're going to have a great life and you're going to live all for a long time and then everything else is going to die thereafter. That's the greatest trick, right? You're going to get all you want. You're going to have a great time. And then death will be what's left over. The Christian life, Jesus' sacrifice is like, no, I'm going to come and I'm going to die. And what's left over is life for everyone. That's the exact opposite form, right? So we're in Romans and Samuel Taylor Coolidge, who is a weirdo um, poet, said the most, this Romans was the most <laughs> profound book in human existence. And so that's fun, except then when I looked up who he was, I was like, well, that doesn't matter anymore now. <laughs> he just loved opium all the time. And so you're like, oh. Is it really Romans? I don't know now. <laughs> Godot, who is a theologian, said, Romans is the cathedral of the Christian faith. Peter Craved said, this is the longest epistle, um, and it's first in preeminence in the list of all the epistles, not only because it's the longest, but because it's the greatest, because it really describes to us our faith. And so if you look at the New Testament, first you have these Four books that are the Gospels, three are the Synoptics, and then there's the Gospel of John, and they're describing the life of Jesus, how he lived, what he did, what he said. And then the book of Acts is like, and then the church was birthed, and this is what happened. And then the next set of books are teachings to the church. This is how I want you to behave. This is who you are. This is what this new covenant even means. This is what justification means. This is what grace means. These, this is what you still are going to do. These are the response in works. All of these things are then taught to the church. That's what the epistles are. And Romans is the first one. And so we said last week that um, Paul is writing to the Romans. And we have to remember that at the time, Rome is debauched. Rome is not like a a pinnacle of just peace and beauty. They're the most powerful nation in the world. Rome is the most powerful city in the world, and they love sin. And they love temple prostitution, and they love all of this kind of chaos. 
and the, the seed of the gospel lands in the city of Rome and the gospel wins. Isn't that an incredible idea? It's really easy for us to think of like New York City and, and the systems of power and Wall Street. And we live close to the Federal Reserve. They have the most gold in the Federal Reserve uh, as anywhere, more than anywhere else in the world. Um, as, maybe that's debatable with people stealing gold or moving gold these days. But certainly more than anywhere else in the United States is that little building. It's not a little building. Uh, building off of Pine Street. And um, it's easy to look at the security guards around that building and the stashes of gold and the bad guys that have all the wealth in the world and the things that they want to do. And we think, can the gospel really win? Can the seed of the gospel be dropped in a place like New York City and really take over? Is that even a possibility? It doesn't feel like it to most of us on the day-to-day living level. And the crazy thing about the gospel is Paul's going to talk about how simple the gospel is And the simplicity of it and the beauty of it is what changes the entire world because the world, the systems of the world, the law of entropy applies to those systems. So they're always breaking down. There are always people fighting and vying and destroying each other for power. But the kingdom of God does not follow the laws of entropy. So it grows while the systems of man are beginning to crumble. And Rome crumbles, and Rome begins to crumble, and Rome gets blown up, as you know, in 400 AD by the aliens. They shoot these laser beams, but I don't know if you know that part of history. (laughs) Um, But the kingdom of God proliferates and spreads, and the increase of his kingdom in government, there will be no end. So it's independent of if we see around us systems that are currently seeming like they're winning, we have an incorruptible gospel. We have an eternal story and an eternal narrative that God integrated us into by the grace of Jesus. So Paul, the center of this book of Romans, this is the last part of this recap, is the gospel. And we talked about this last week, but the gospel is the good news. And it's very hard in a wealthy society for the gospel to be good news. And Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. We've said before that why did Jesus choose an, a camel in that parable? Why not an elephant or you know, a dinosaur or just even like trying to get a dog through a needle is challenging, you know? Why an elephant or why a camel? And the camel is the only animal in the animal kingdom that self-carries its own water on its back. It's self-sustaining. It has its own resources that it walks around with. It's this picture of an animal in abundance, even in dry places. And the idea is, is Jesus is saying, people that have an abundance, it's really hard for them to find God. Because you're like, I have good news. And they're like, yeah, I don't really need your good news. <laughs> you're a sinner and... But, but this is an incredible thing. You're a sinner, but Christ died for you so you can have a relationship with God. It's like, I'm not really a sinner. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good. You know, I work at Twitter, and they give us lunch uh, for free every day, and it's really great. They have a full salad bar, and I'm nice, and I, and I donate to uh, the USPCA, and there are these things that I do that make me nice. And we don't recognize good news because we don't live in a bad news world. We don't recognize that we are sinful creatures and that we are deserving of judgment. It's a, it's a really basic, logical breakdown. I, and I, once I discovered it when I was writing my book, Good Kills, that God has to be perfect in order to be God. He has to be perfectly good and he has to be perfectly just. And in order for him to be perfect... If he wasn't perfectly just, then he wouldn't be good. 
Justice demands payment for sin. And so we say, why do bad things happen in the world? And the Christian answer is, God's in control of the world, and he will punish all sin in eternity. All wrong will be punished. So for God to be perfectly just, he must punish all sin. So therefore, I must be punished. But if I live in a relativistic world where I'm the arbiter of good and evil, then whatever I do is not bad. So if I want to dress little teddy bears up in BDSM sexual bondage clothes and give them to little children, who's to say that's bad? I don't know if you guys have been watching the news this week. That's exactly what Balenciaga did. They had their ad company and they dressed up these little bears in leather whips and sexual outfits and gave them to little children and said, hey, let's take some pictures to show how edgy we are. I was thinking about this. I was like, um, I was like, if you're living in, in, in sexual anarchy in a sexually disoriented way, and I mean disoriented, I mean not oriented to the way of God, the kingdom of God, you want to affirm that at every level of society. And you want to force that affirmation on every level of society. So at the end of the day, you're not only going to place that on children, you're going to try to make children behave in the same way you will. There's something in society that says a child is pure. Well, I want a child to be pure, and I want in their purity them to represent my sexual perversion. And still, we have, because we have wealth, we have this culture that says, I'm not in sin. I don't need a savior. And so the gospel... Um, is harder to preach unless we are willing to preach sin and repentance as associated with it. The only way we can communicate the gospel without sin is to say, well, you kind of don't know about eternity, so you kind of have like a 50-50 on eternity. So if you say this prayer, then eternity will be set for you. And the gospel is not just talking about eternity. It's talking about our standing before God in the here and now, our current relationship with God and whether we're justified. And that's what the gospel is about. And Paul is going to go ham on it next week. Hammy hamster ham. He's going to lose his mind a little bit in a very logical way, in a very beautiful way. Um, okay, let's jump into the verse, first verse. You guys ready? All right. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now, this phrase all over the world in the ancient time meant the developed world. It didn't actually mean beyond all over the world. The, the Romans, the church in Rome that was established by Peter, the renown of that church and their service to God was being reported over the developed world. This section is called the proem. It's the second introduction to the letter, and it is going to be a lens for the entire letter, and the lens is going to be the gospel. And that's where we see this phrase that is, seems like a Passover phrase. If you don't really read your Bible and think about exactly what's being said, you can pass it by. Don't do that. It says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Something to note is there's not a second or a third or a fourth. It doesn't say first and then a second and then third. Paul's saying first because he's putting the emphasis and priority on, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. This is a picture of the gospel. I have access to God. I can communicate to God. I can pray to God. He can hear my prayers through Jesus Christ. Not based upon my works, not based upon my Judaism, not based upon the system of law I kept, but this is the fundamentals of the gospel that all of my access, communication, and legal standing is done through the person of Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for me. 
And he says this, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported to all the world. Again, when you have lots of stuff, it's easy to not be thankful. And we've, you know, maybe had that experience, some of us, over uh, Thanksgiving. I know my kids can be ultra food critics sometimes. They're like, I'm like, how is the turkey? And they're like, you know, Dad, it was like a 6 out of 10 turkey. I'm like, how is not eating? How is that on a scale of 1 to 10? Let's talk about that. Let's talk about not eating. But when we have lots of blessing in our life, it's easier to be critical than it is to be thankful. But Paul's introducing this thing, and he's saying, the first thing before I correct your theology, before I tell you how to behave in chapters 15, 16, 17, I'm going to say, first of all, I'm really thankful for you. And thankfulness has to come first. Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. Verse 4, enter his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. This is not a suggestion. This is not uh, dependent upon how you feel that day. This is a commandment, and it's expressly a commandment when we come into the house of the Lord. Sometimes I come up here, it didn't happen today, but sometimes I come up here and it looks like everybody wants to kill themselves. And I'm like, man, is it the commute? I mean, <laughs> what's going on? But the command is to be thankful. The command is to make a joyful noise irrelevant of your week or of your day, and it changes our internal state. Enter his gates, so come into the place where God dwells with thanksgiving primarily in your heart. It's the kid that's coming to his parent and asking for a thing, and before he asks for his thing, he says, man, Dad, I really like you. Leon did this to me recently. He's like, Dad, you know, you're just so great. And I was like, man, this is a good day here. And he's like, we'd love to get this new Ninja Turtles comic. And I was like, ah, I've been had. But it works. It works. Of course you can. Buy the whole series, you know. But if he came in with criticism or I'm so sad, or it's just not how you approach the throne of God. Because we've been already given more than we can ever ask for. And we don't recognize that. We've been given life and breath. We've been given, we've been chosen out of the world. We literally have been plucked out of the world to have a relationship with God, to go on into eternity with God. He's given us our all that we need. And then we often come like, Lord, why why haven't I why aren't I, you know, a famous Broadway hero yet? It's like maybe if you were a Broadway hero, you would lose your faith and you would be destroying your life. Maybe God knows exactly what you need. Potentially. Potentially, he knows everything. Okay. I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. And then the next verse says, I thank God whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his son is my witness... God, his son, is my witness of how constantly I remember you at all times in my prayers. And that word um, in my spirit means pneuma. It is the life. It's the breath of God. It's one of my most favorite concepts in Christianity. The animate force of God that's living in every single being. It's God's breath inside of us. It says in the scripture in Ecclesiastes that when we die, the, our bodies go to the ground and our breath returns to God because our breath is not our own. It's borrowed by 
us from God and it returns to him. So the very animate force of the universe, we think, well, it's just me. I can do whatever I want with it. But the scriptural idea is this breath that you're breathing right now is borrowed and you only get a certain amount of those. And we say, wow, thank you, God, that I get another one of those. Thank you that I just got another one of those. Thank you that you've given me this animate force, this life. And that's why we can be, as believers, fundamentally grateful and fundamentally thankful, even if I don't know what's happening next, even if I don't know where I'm going to live yet or I have a housing issue or whatever it is, I can fundamentally be thankful for God that his life is inside of me. And then he says this, and he says, "Um, I constantly remember you all the time in my prayers. Bob Grimm, my pastor, preached here at King's Church. You should listen to it if you haven't. It was like four, four or five weeks ago. And he preached this message about God wanting us to pray. God desiring to hear our needs. God wanting us to come before him with supplication, with needs. To say, Father, I'm your son. I need your help. And when I was reading Revelation chapter 5 this week, Uh, It says this, and when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And I just thought, what a crazy idea. Could you imagine that your prayer today to God would stand before him in eternity in heaven and and literally like he would smell something beautiful when he hears your prayers. It would be it would it would make him happy that you would pray to him. Oftentimes, people have had relationships with parents. It's like, I got to ask my parent a thing, and they're like annoyed. They're like, oh, dad, can I borrow the car? It's like, oh, you're going to smash it again. You're like, oh. One time I was borrowing the car, and I was backing it out of the driveway, and it was, I had this total dumb and dumber moment where I had the car front door open and was looking, and it hit this giant stump, and the car door totally folded the wrong direction. And you get out, and you're like, I'll just push it back. <laughs> this giant dent in it. And we have parents in the world, so we have relationships that are awkward, and we ask for things, and it doesn't always go well. But it's not like that with God. It pleases him to ask us things. The prayers of the saints arise before God like an incense in eternity. And I think there are things that we don't ask for, and we just think, man, I don't want to annoy God with this, or I don't want to, I don't want to bother him with this request, but he's a good father, and he's eternal, and he has an eternal mind. His mind is beyond our comprehension, so he can actually listen to your prayer specifically and listen to another person's prayer specifically. He can care about the smallest of your needs because of the enormity of his mind. Someone that doesn't have a right conception of God or realize how large he is, they say something like, well, then why would God care about my need? Why would God care that the, the arm of my glasses just broke off and, and it's stressing me out because I have to go buy new frames for $300? His, his mind is much vaster than you can comprehend. He can care about the desires of a child and still care about the desires of you and care about the desires or destiny of a nation because of the vastness of his mind. And when you don't bring to him the things that burden you, you say to God, I don't think your mind is big enough to handle my things. It's not a great idea. Be like a little child. Bring to the Lord all of your burdens. Amen? 
1 John 5.14. This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that's good, because that's talking about knowing the will of God, and knowing his word, and knowing his way, and not saying like, Lord, I really just want like a giant whatever, jet, Learjet, I'll take a Learjet, God, and I need gas too, because I can't afford the gas if you give me a Learjet. No, we ask according to his will. We ask stuff that he know that we know is in accordance with how he wants the world to function, not just a giant bubblegum machine in the sky. But that being said, we have to ask him for things. Next verse. And I pray that now at last by God's will that the, that a way or the way may be opened for me to come to you. I like this part because Paul is saying, I'm praying for you, I'm interceding for you, I'm believing God's best for you, but I also know God is ultimately in control. He's in charge. He's the one that directs the, uh, the, the, my, my life, whether I can come, when I can come. It's really not totally up to me. I want things to happen, but I'm saying, God, I'm willing to wait for those things to happen. And people with moving or, you know, especially New York life, it's like, God, what am I supposed to do? Where am I supposed to go? You know, am I, I need a new apartment. I need a new friend. Paul is living this life with God where he's waiting for the door to be open. And he literally says this, you know, and I pray that now, at last, by the will of God, a way may be opened for me to come to you. We, we hear that phrase a lot in charismatic, Christian, uh, charismatic Christianity, God, will you open a door? Well, it's a completely biblical prayer. It's literally praying the Bible. God, will you open a way for me? And until you do, I'm going to be content with exactly where you've placed me. Okay, next verse. Verse 11. I long to see you, Paul is saying, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. Paul longs to be with the people of God. Paul's desire is not just to be out on adventure or just to be cool or show off his spiritual gifts. He deeply desires fellowship with the people of God, that there may be mutual encouragement. And I shared in the earlier service, Proverbs 18.1, a man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. I want to be alone because I want to do what I want to do, and I don't care about other people. A man who isolates seeks his own desire, A, B, and rages against all wise judgment. It's not easy to develop relationship. It's painful, actually. And you reach out to people, and they don't want to hang out. Or you text your pastor, and he doesn't respond back for a week. <laughs> That never happens to me, never. But other pastors I've heard are like that. Relationship takes time and effort. Relationship takes development. And that's why the wicked man here in Proverbs 18, it's way easier to isolate yourself. But Paul is saying, I long to be with you. I long to be with the people of faith. I long to surround myself with the people of God, that I can bring something to you and I can receive something from you. I like that Paul is not just like, I'm the guy, I have all the answers, you have nothing for me. I'm going to throw like little corn at you and then you're going to peck, peck it off the ground and then I'll float to the next city. But there is a mutual encouragement by being with people of faith that there's a synergy that takes place and I receive from something from you from the relationship that God has with you. And we need that one to another. And if we don't pursue and develop those relationships, then what are we doing? We're raging against wisdom. We're pursuing our own needs that are easier. It's easier for me to be alone. Trust me. I um, was doing this how to work with other people test. 
And I started thinking about, well, part of the test is like, okay, for the last however long for me, you know, 20 years of work, how, how have you worked well with other people? And I'm like, um, I work best when I'm alone, not around other people at all. I was like doing all these tests and I'm like, thinking about all the offices I have, I'm like, I've been alone in my office for my, the last 20 years. Um, I'm very distractible. I'm a very distractible person. And so uh, you can do that for a while, but if you don't learn how to work with other people, then you can't build anything significant. You can write, write a great book by yourself, but you can't build something significant without other people. It's just how it works. And God didn't give us all the gifts because he wants us to rely on one another and his Holy Spirit through one another and create this synergy of community that Paul is directly communicating about here. This Look at his. It says... Um, that is that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Amen? Okay, verse 13. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you just as I've had among the other Gentiles. So we said that Peter started the church, but Paul wants to have a harvest. He says here, that he's been prevented from doing so. And we don't know if the preve- that preventing was strictly the Holy Spirit or strictly circumstances, um, but we know that he's going to be on his way there. And that's why we said last week, the intro to this book of Romans is the longest intro of all of the epistles because it's the intro where Paul doesn't know the community that he's speaking to. So he's saying, kind of, this is who I am. This is the calling of God on my life. This is the gospel. And I, I can't wait to get to you soon. He then says, in order that I may have a harvest among you. This is Paul's primary drive. It's primary, his primary aim. It's to see the gospel, the harvest of the gospel. That is ripe fruit before the Lord. I was thinking about this wheat thing. You know, Jesus says, the fields are white with harvest. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into the fields. So then you cut down the wheat and then you, uh, you, you take the kernels, you sift it, you get the kernels, you crush it into flour, you make bread and bread you eat. And there's this picture of something that God likes to eat. What does God like to eat? I think what what is pleasing to God, the analogy of what's pleasing to God, is sons and daughters walking in righteousness before him. Washing the blood of the lamb, walking in righteousness, that the kingdom of heaven would come to earth, on earth as it is in heaven. And that process takes place first by initial salvation and then coming in and happening. You then mature in your relationship with God. You're equipped by apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers for the work of the ministry for all of the saints. You're taught God's way. You're filled with the Spirit, and you're walking before him, and it's pleasing in his sight. He says this phrase, and I was thinking about it earlier this week as I was praying, he says, I'm, I'm eager that I may have a harvest among you. And I thought, you know, generally in Christianity, we just think of that as evangelism. But if I was writing a letter to Gabe and I said, man, I can't wait to come and visit you. And I'm eager to have a harvest. And we were going to be mutual and courage. And I want to have a harvest with you. You would say, well, he's already saved. What do you mean a harvest with him? Well, there's not just salvation. There's maturing in the body of Christ. And... Um, Church generally tends to be one of two things. Like you just come and hang out and pay your tithe and then go live your life. Or it tends to be kind of evangelism trap and then like hopefully you figure this thing out. But, but there's also a harvest of the maturation of the son or daughter into, into the fullness, 
the writer of Hebrews says, he's like, I would love to talk to you guys about the deep things, about meat and about some intense things that would mature you, but I can't yet because you're so immature. I have to stick with the baby stuff and I want to get you past that. The baby stuff is the simple gospel, sin, righteousness, but there's more to it. There's adventure in God that you're to be called into and that produces a massive harvest. And that's really our desire at King's Church. Verse 15, this is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you. Oh, I I skipped a verse here. I'm obligated both to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, both to the wise and to the foolish. I, when we first moved to New York City, Bethany and I were broke as a joke, as a bad joke, as a joke that no one laughed at. That's how broke we were. And I remember walking by homeless people um, begging for money, and I would be like, I don't have any money, and they would be like, you do too. And I was thinking, no, I truly don't have any money at all at this point in my life. I have zero money. And I, I started getting actually frustrated, just like harboring frustration. And, I, you know, I worked with homeless ministries. I worked with St. Paul's House as a teen for many years uh, on 50, what is it, 51st Street? Um, and so I love people in all kinds of stations, but I remember just kind of getting so agitated that I was made a commitment. I was like, I'm never going to, I'm not talking to homeless people. I'm not giving them money. I'm not doing anything. And this is in the second year we were, lived in New York City. And I was walking around with my father-in-law and I was talking about this issue of homelessness in New York City. I think we spent $3 billion uh, on homelessness last year, if the number's right. I remember it's something like, we, in New York City, we spend something like $62,000 per homeless people in um, taxation that comes from us and goes to those resources. Talking to my father-in-law about how frustrated I was about that. And he's like, uh, I just said, so I'm not, I don't, I don't care, if, I don't reach out to people, and he's, I don't give anybody money, or whatever. I'll, and, and my father-in-law said, you can't make any rules like that. You're not allowed to make those rules. He's like, he said, you don't know if the Holy Spirit will not say to you tomorrow, I want you to give that person $1,000, and you have to do it. You're not allowed to just make rules about who you're, who you're going to love and how you're going to love them. That's actually up to the Holy Spirit to lead you that way. And I remember being really convicted about it because I was like, I will not give a dollar. And I don't know if you've ever met those conservatives. They're like, I'm never giving a dollar to anybody that's broke because they're just going to spend it on booze. Uh, that's not your decision to just pass by someone and say, you know, I know you and I know your life. That's called passing judgment. That's, that's the kind of judgment we don't pass. The kind of judgment we do pass is saying the BDSM teddy bears are a bad thing. That's the judgment we do pass. The judgment we don't pass is I know exactly who you are and you're a bad guy. And if I give you this money, you're going to be an extra bad guy. We're not allowed to pass that kind of judgment on the intents of someone's heart. And so, um, I, there's a, there's an Al who is screaming, he'll, Al will be at church at some point, but he was screaming, howling at the moon outside of my apartment for like um, six months. I was getting so frustrated at him. And then I was like, well, maybe I should actually meet him. And I spent, Gabe, you met him with me. Yeah. Um, I spent a couple of months getting to know him and he was howling at the moon. This is like a three, I don't know, six weeks ago. And I went down and I prayed with him and uh, spent some time with him. And I felt like the Lord gave me a word for him. And he was in a just demon rage eyes crazy. I prayed for him and just peace of the Lord came over him. And he's, I haven't heard him screaming on the street in at least six weeks. Since that day I prayed. Um, and, and I didn't fix him. I haven't given him a home. He didn't get, I didn't move him into Goldie's room. You know, we haven't done that. But 
we as believers need to, like Paul, say, I have an obligation to the Greeks and the non-Greeks, the barbarians, the Scythians, the whoever, like everybody that I walk by, I have an obligation to communicate the gospel. I may not do it well. I may be mad at that guy, for, but I'm, I'm going to have a heart that keeps coming before the Lord and saying, God, soften my heart. I don't have it all figured out, but show me that I'm obligated to all these people. So this, you know, this week, next Saturday, I'm going to be at Mar-a-Lago, and I'm going to be around a lot of non-homeless people. And I'm going to have the same obligation to them, to be someone that represents the gospel, not be someone that can get somewhere or climb a ladder or be on a show or get a deal or any of those kind of things. Because what we do with homeless people is like, what do you want from me? What we do with wealthy people is like, what can I get from you? And they're both wrong. They're both not just saying, I have an obligation to represent the gospel. That's what I have an obligation to do. And that is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. I love this because the gospel um, is, is Paul, the center of Paul's life. It loses the centrality in the life of a believer when we get fixated on works. I read the quote last week that when we get fixated on, on, ro- on works, Bonhoeffer says that's the road to damnation. And then on the other side, if we get fixated on grace alone, that becomes a thing called cheap grace, and that's also a road to damnation. But the gospel is central in Paul's life, and he doesn't forget his need for salvation, his need for forgiveness, and the demand that it places upon him to walk a certain kind of way. That is why I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. He's writing a letter to the Romans, and he's saying, you inside the church still need to hear the gospel. Like You haven't graduated from the fundamentals yet. You need to have this reestablished with regularity in your life. That's why we're preaching through Romans right now as a church, because I just felt the burden. We need to have the gospel reestablished. We're doing cool stuff. We're talking, you know, getting a picture with the president, whatever, doing cool guy stuff, telling Kanye not to run for 2024, you know? (laughs) Great, fantastic. But the gospel has to be central. That's the thing that has to be central in the life of the believer. 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First the Jew and then the Gentile. Uh, It's really easy to be ashamed of the church in the 21st century, not only because the news mocks our pastors and our leaders and, uh, and we have bad examples and it seems like those bad examples get the biggest stage. It's not just because of that. We do have... Uh, a secular media, and that secular media is not run by Christians, and the, and the Christian is portrayed as a fool, as a, a moron, as an idiot. If he's a man, he's flaccid and gross. Uh, if, if she's a woman, she's moralizing and overbearing and evil and has ulterior motives. Christianity as characterized to the world is something that's pathetic. And, and uh, Actually, one of my favorite... One of my favorite things about being a Christian in our day and age is that people are so, they have such a strong stereotype about who Christians are is that when you actually engage with people, they're like, wow, is this true? You're a Christian? You're actually like a Christian? How is that? You're like, well, um, it is. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) 
But I think, I think the, sh- the shame issue needs to be cauterized against, and we as believers have to take active steps to cauterize against the shame. One of the reasons we have our weekly outreach team is to give us opportunities to go out and to preach the gospel. And we have people that pray for people every week and share their testimony every week, and it's not easy to do that. It's not easy. I love the story. I'm going to tell the story, Sincere. I love you turning gray. The story where Sincere turned gray. I'm going to make it a short video. And we were preaching on the subway, and the subway doors close, and it's really scary to stand up and say, Jesus loves you. You're a foul, evil heathen, you foul, (laughs) you creature of the dark. For some reason, God likes you. I don't know why. You stink. No. Um, So we just share the gospel. And what we think is a compelling way, and the compelling way, I think the most compelling way is, God made a beautiful and incredible world and placed us in a garden. That was his original intention. And we broke the whole world. I think that's a really good way to share the gospel. And then, and then Jesus made a way for, for the world to be fixed. And um, anyway, Sincere went to get up and his, he, he went to get up to preach the first time and his face literally turned pallor, a pallor of gray. And I was like, I've never seen a human turn a different color fully before. Because it's... Because we have a world that says Christianity is stupid and shameful and embarrassing, and don't you dare talk about your religion in public. And then he's like, I can't do it. He sits down by me, and then I preach the next, and then the next one, he's like, I can do it. And he gets up and just preaches fire to the, to the, to the subway car. Absolute fire. And I was like, I'll raise my hand for the salvation call. <laughs> For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. Um, I think the other element is that when the gospel loses power in our life, it's easy for us to be ashamed by it. But if we have a living and active testimony where God is doing actual stuff in our life, he's changing me, he's bringing me peace. I just went through this crazy surgery and I, and I just had peace through it because God was alive in me. It's easy when the active power of God is in your life to not have to be ashamed and actually be able to have a testimony to share with the world around you. Another really fun way is just because we have all these fun K logos. Um, and I know that we have people that get asked about, what is that weird K-Loser? Is that like a Ku Klux Klan thing? No, it's not. It's my church. It's very, it's quite the opposite. It's quite the opposite. Verse 17, for, it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Worship team, you can come up, and I want to close on this last scripture right here. Um, Peter Kraft, one of the commentators that I like on this book, he says that this verse right here, 17, the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed, a righteousness, a righteousness that is by faith from faith to first to last. This verse is the whole book. This is the lens by which we uh, understand all of the rest of the book. Everything can find its origin point in this very verse. For the gospel is the righteousness of God. You say, well, how is just like the gospel, which is just grace and forgiveness, how is that the righteousness of God? That's not the righteousness of God. The whole gospel, which is sin, justice, Christ, forgiveness, grace, mercy, repentance, all of those elements together are the gospel. When people say, what's the gospel? It's not just the mercy of God. That's the second half of the gospel. The first half of the gospel is why we need the mercy of God. 
And that's why it says this, it is the righteousness of God revealed because it's both his standard, perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly just. It's his standard of righteousness. We miss the standard. And then Christ comes and makes a way for us to have the grace and beauty and mercy and love of God. It's the fullness of the righteousness of God revealed. A righteousness that is, field, uh, that is revealed by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith from beginning to end. We'll go to Abraham and say, the whole Jewish nation thing, that's not about you know, wearing strange hats and having curly sideburns. That's about faith. That's, that's the inception of that, or the initiation of that is from faith at first to the new covenant, faith at last. In our lives, the gospel comes faith first, and then it's consummated ultimately in faith as well. There's no point in which we're, where, where works is the thing that we're justified by. We're justified by faith initially, faith at the first, like Paul says, and faith in the last. And what happens to us as believers, we can get on our race and we can like do our things. We got our law practices we're going to take taken care of and we got our kids we're raising and we can get, the focus can get off of the gospel as the initiation and the completion and we can just get off target. And Paul says faith initiates the work and completes the work, which is why we're focusing on the justification by faith through Jesus Christ our Lord that cleanses us from real sin and real, <laughs> saves us from real judgment and real damnation because our sin is real and horrific. And Jesus comes to heal us and cleanse us. I love that first, last week I read out of this that commentary, it said that the, the position of Jesus gave him the power to extend salvation to all who would believe. It's not we who get Salvation, like we don't pull ourselves up to salvation. Jesus extends salvation to us by faith. Stand up with me, church. Father, we thank you this morning for the gospel, the fullness of it, the entire story, beginning with faith and ending with faith. God, we thank you that you're holy and just and powerful and good and righteous. And we thank you, Jesus, for coming as the substitutionary atonement for making us at one with God. That's that word, atonement, at one meant that the blood of Jesus would come and heal us and free us and restore us. Do that in our lives this week, Lord. Let us begin in faith and let us end in faith, God. Let our week be initiated by faith and completed by faith, God. Work in our lives by the power of your grace. In Jesus' name, everybody said amen. Hey, thanks for listening to today's podcast. Acts twenty twenty seven says, For I have not hesitated to proclaim the whole counsel of God, And that's something that we're trying to do at King's Church. We're trying to steward God's word and share it to a generation. If you want to partner in us sharing the whole counsel of God's truth, please text KCNYC to 77977 and partner with us here at King's Church to get God's message, his whole counsel, all over the place on podcasts and on radio. 
and around the world. So believers like you would be encouraged. Thanks.